Uh, all right. So um, 10 years ago, uh, I was looking it up. It was, it was 2012. We decided, let's try something different every now and then. Um, let's do something called FAQ, where instead of a normal sermon, uh, we'll just discuss some of our toughest questions when it comes to the Bible um, or faith and, um, and what we believe. And so uh, we do this every few years. It's been a couple of years since we did this, and so this felt like a good weekend uh, to do it. But before we jumped in, and you guys wrote some really great questions and some really tough questions, thank you for that. Uh, but before we jump in, um, just a few quick uh, qualifiers. Um, First, uh, I'm just going to offer um, some of my thoughts, or both of us, Emily and I, are both going to offer some of our thoughts. Um, they're not necessarily going to be the right or the perfect answers, right? So there's a reason we don't call this Q&A. We just call it FAQ because um, we're just going to sort of offer some of our thoughts on some of these questions, and hopefully they're informed. Some of these questions we've thought a lot about. Others, it's like, whoa, I haven't thought about that. Here's some kind of quick takes on that. Um, but keep that in mind. Uh, we're also not necessarily um, offering the new Denver church position on any of these things. Um, as a church, we affirm the Apostles' Creed, which articulates really the, the center and the most central tenets of the historic uh, Christian faith. Um, and so many things are outside of that or secondary to that. And probably almost everything we talk about this morning is secondary or outside of that. And so we'll sort of offer, again, some of our thoughts, but um, it's not so much to say this is what everybody in here believes as a church. It's more, hopefully this is helpful uh, for you as you're wrestling with this question. And really, that's the ultimate goal. Um, our, our, our goal is not to shut down conversations with answers, but to start conversations, uh, to say, here's some things to think about. And if you go home and think more deeply about these things, as this stimulates more thought, maybe stimulates conversation, and you begin to talk with other people about something we talked about this morning, like that's a win. That is the goal. That's really uh, what we're going for. So um, with that in mind, I think that was it in terms of, oh, one more qualification. Uh, we got a bunch of questions. We're not going to have time to go through all of them. Um, so uh, if we don't read your question or talk about it, that's not because it was a bad question. It's just we got a ton of questions. We got some that came in online this week. People wrote them. So we'll talk about some of those. And then, of course, a bunch of you wrote questions. And then we talked about a whole bunch of different ones earlier at the 830 service, some of which are the exact questions some of you asked. So we won't go back over those. So you can go online um, and we'll post both services. So if you want to listen to the questions we talked about uh, at the early service, you can do that. All right. Any, would you add anything to that? Um, I'm reading through some of the questions right now and dang, you guys are deep. That's cool. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I just want to give a disclaimer at the beginning that um, some questions are we're able to offer a few thoughts in a few minutes and some are so big and complex or it just leaves me wondering, huh, I wonder why that person asked that question, what's going on in their life? And so some questions are just better answered over coffee and, um, and we just want to be the kinds of pastors who are always available to people. Um, we don't want you to be wrestling with a question in your life and then wait for a year hoping maybe we'll do an FAQ Sunday. We really want to, um, to get together with you and, and explore questions that you have about church or God or the Bible or all those things at any time. So yeah, that's it. Okay. You ready? Yes. We'll start with a nice light, easy one. Um, how do you reconcile faith and politics when both sides get some things wrong and some things right? Follow up. 
P.S. Also, is a hot dog a taco? Smiley face. <laughs> Uh, I guess yes, a hot dog is a taco. Um, politics, faith in politics, let's talk about that. Um, two of the most non-controversial topics around. Um, yeah, I think it's important. Um, so Somebody else asked a question this week online where they said, how do you talk to people who have different political perspectives when they think Jesus supports their view of politics and you think Jesus supports your view of politics? And um, I think that's hard Uh, It happens because I think Jesus challenges sort of all political perspectives. So so just to be real specific, if you are on the more left side of things, I think there's some things about probably some political views you hold that Jesus deeply challenges. And if you're on the right side, there's some things Jesus deeply challenges. The problem is usually what we focus on are the ways that Jesus challenges the other people, right? We like to focus on the ways that he might disagree with positions they hold. And so I think it's important, um, whatever your political perspective is, is to actually just focus on yourself. And um, I think things would be so much better if, you know, Christians who are more left-leaning or who are Democrats would ask the question, how does Jesus challenge sort of the things that I think are good for our country. And I think if people on the right would ask the questions, how does Jesus challenge the things that I think are good? If everyone did that, things would be um, so much better. So I think that would be one perspective to think through. The the other is, um, how do you have, I think part of the question was like, how do you talk to other people who have a different political perspective? Um, You just don't. That's that's it. (laughs) So that's easy. No, I'm joking. Um, I mean, part of the reason, uh, partly true. I, I, let me say this. I think you can only have healthy conversations with people who have a very different political perspective than you do um, if a few things are true. One, it has to be in person. Like, it's not a conversation if it's on Twitter or if it's on email or if it's texting back and forth or if it's posting Facebook messages sort of back and forth. And, like, that's not a conversation. And that's always worse. So it it has to be a conversation that happens in person. Um, But then another thing is I think there have to be a few things. There has to be uh, humility, listening, and openness on both sides. Meaning like I have to enter into a conversation with someone who I know has a very different perspective than me on a political issue or politics in general. And I have to enter with humility. I could be wrong. Uh, Listening, I'm actually going to listen to what they say and what they're thinking and why they've arrived at the position they've arrived at. And openness, right? They might actually teach me something. I might better understand something or see something that I've missed. So I have to have that on my side. And then they have to have that as well. Like both parties have to say, we're going to talk about this thing, but we're both coming from sort of a posture of humility and listening and openness. And if both parties don't have that, especially if it's like a family member, right? It's not going to be a fruitful conversation. So I actually say like, just don't have it. Don't, because it's just not going to be productive or helpful. Um, You have to have those pieces and then maybe some progress and maybe some mutual understanding can, can begin to happen. So anything to add to that? Oh, yeah, I have some thoughts. A hot dog is not a taco. It is also not a sandwich. You didn't ask, but I know you were thinking it. Um, 
And with faith and politics, I just want to affirm the person who wrote this question, it seems like maybe you're in the middle and you're seeing both sides and how they both get it wrong. And um, I think that's, it's a hard place to be because you don't know how to vote on like anything, but it's a good place to be. I think that is probably a place that Jesus would fall seeing that's not exactly right. And look, that's not exactly right. So I would challenge you more if you feel like you fit squarely in one camp to really do some of that self-reflection and, and just be open and ask the question, maybe there is something that I'm not seeing here. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, why do some churches baptize kids as infants and some don't? Um, yeah. This is a big one. Um, a big one meaning it just, I, I think there's a lot behind it. I don't think it's complex or, or even that controversial. It was controversial at one point in church history, but um, uh, it's true. Um, there are, if you grew up in a, a Catholic church or an Orthodox or an Anglican or Episcopal or, or Lutheran or maybe even a, a Methodist or Presbyterian church, um, they often baptize infants, and maybe you were even baptized, or you brought a baby to be baptized when it was born. And then there's other streams of Christianity, um, Baptists in particular, uh, most non-denominational churches, most charismatic or, or Pentecostal churches, that practice a very different way of doing baptism. It's called believer's baptism. And um, you kind of have to go back to the Bible and some history to unpack these two things. Um, it seems that the practice in the New Testament was primarily believer's baptism. That what was happening was people were choosing to follow Jesus, to place their faith in him. They were mostly adults or people making this choice. And when they did, they would get baptized. And um, the, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. It means to like dunk, to like go underwater. And that was very important. And symbolic, they would go to a pool of water or to a river and, and somebody would get immersed in the water. And it was symbolic because when you went under the water, it symbolized dying with Christ to your old life and to your old self. And when you came up out of the water, it symbolized rising with Christ in, into a new life and accepting the new life and the new identity that he has for you. So it was really, really important. And all the theological language in the New Testament describes baptism in this way. And all the stories we have of people getting baptized are, are like this. In fact, there's really no stories whatsoever in the New Testament of infants being baptized. Now, there's a couple of stories of, a, of, of somebody coming to get baptized because they became a follower of Jesus. And it says, and their whole family was baptized. And we don't know how old the family members were. Probably the whole family decided to become Christians and follow Jesus. It's possible that there were some young children or infants in there. But there's just no specific stories of the way, it, the way it's practiced today of like families bringing babies uh, to be baptized. So the early practice seemed to be believer's baptism, and, and the stories we have from early church history for the first few hundred years are like that as well. Uh, then something changed in about the fourth or fifth century. Um, there's a lot of things going on here, so I'll just like summarize as, as simply as possible. Church leaders started to baptize infants. And there are two major reasons behind this. Um, one reason is some church leaders began to see uh, that baptism in the New Testament, they thought was a lot like circumcision in the Old Testament. So if you remember ancient Israelites uh, circumcised their male children, only males, um, and it was a sign. Their baby, after a few days of being born, would be circumcised. And it was a physical sign that this child is becoming a part of the community of God's chosen people. They are now a part of the nation of Israel, and we're welcoming this child into this community of faith. 
And so uh, some Christians begin to see, we think baptism is a whole lot like that. So let's baptize infants because it's the same way. It's a way for parents to bring their children and say, we want to welcome this child into the community of faith and we're going to nurture this child as he or she grows up. Um, another reason infants are being baptized, and this is one where I think, um, and most Christians today would agree that things got off track a little bit, is they started to equate baptism with the forgiveness of sins. Like literally, your sins are not forgiven until you actually go under the water. And until that moment, that is the moment at which, even though Jesus died on the cross a long time ago and God forgave your sins sort of then, it doesn't really get applied to you until the moment you go under the water. Now, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, There's a story of Jesus looking to the thief on the cross, right? And the thief saying, I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And he probably wasn't baptized, right? So I think he was, um, so I, I don't, I think that's sort of linking two things too closely together. But you can see that if you believe that, and if you have kids who are three or four or five or six years old and they die, but they haven't been baptized, their sins are not forgiven and you believe they're going straight to hell. Like that was the belief back then. So now it became really important for families to bring their children as infants and baptize them as soon as possible so that they would sort of receive God's grace, even though they hadn't understood it yet, even though they don't even know what it means to be a sinner or to be forgiven, they have been forgiven. And so this became the dominant practice of church history really for the next thousand years. It's not until the Reformation that some Christians came along and said, wait a second, wait a second, this isn't how they used to do it. It seems like the New Testament supports believers' baptism. And many churches started going back to believers' baptism. Now, uh, today, for us at New Denver, we actually practice believers' baptism because we think that's primarily what the New Testament and the Bible teaches. But we don't think this is a primary issue. So this is a secondary issue. We think baptism is really important because it symbolizes something so important, but we're not going to get hung up on the mode or how it's done. And there are people, probably many of you from all sorts of traditions that come and maybe you were baptized as infants. And if you were baptized as an infant and that's meaningful to you and you've studied this and you would say, yeah, that was when I became part of the community of faith. And I sort of understand the theological understanding of all that. Then we're like, awesome. That's great. That's Good job. You got baptized. We're not going to force you to get like rebaptized or anything like that. Um, but as a church, we do have to have a practice. And so uh, we practice believers' baptism here. Um, you want to add to that? Yeah, I would add. And we love babies and want to incorporate them into the community of faith. And so we do that through child dedication, which we think is a really meaningful um, practice as well. So it kind of takes the best of the heart of infant baptism as it's currently practiced. Um, and we just do it without the water. Because that's really what it is. I mean, when, you, when, a, when a family is bringing a child to be baptized, they're not doing it really for the child. They're doing it for the family and for the church, because they're saying, we are, we are doing this because we love you, and we want you to be a part of this church and this community, and we're going to nurture you in the faith and all those things. And that's hugely important, and we believe so much in that. And so that's why we do child dedication, right? Because that's the heart of it. We're dedicating this child to God. And, um, and hopefully, at one day, they will choose to be a follower of Jesus, and then we'll baptize them, and that'll be awesome. So that's sort of the way we approach it. Um, okay, sharp left here. Is intoxication, such as with cannabis or alcohol, in a celebratory context, always contrary to God's will? Hmm. 
What do you think, Emily? <laughs> no, I'm, um, yeah, I, uh, so the language of like always contrary to God's will, that's sort of strong. I'm not sure I would say it that strongly. That kind of paints it very black and white as if there's a whole bunch of passages in the Bible that would, would specifically say, this is always a sin if you do it in this way. And, and that, that there's just not that in the Bible. Um, now the Bible does have a lot to say about, um, not, nothing to say about smoking pot, <laughs> but it has a lot to say about uh, alcohol, right? Um, there's a lots of people that drink alcohol in the Bible, so there's stories about that. There's also a lot of dangers about alcohol addiction. So there's a lot of verses about abuse of alcohol or addiction. There's passages in the, in the um, Proverbs that talk about that. And then there's also warnings about the negative consequences of intoxication, right, of getting drunk. There's all sorts of stories of bad things happening, you know, when people get drunk. And we don't really need the Bible to tell us that, right? We've got stories from our own lives uh, that we can rely on for that one. Um, but the Bible has lots of stories about, like, when you get intoxicated. And I think um, the heart behind it is, in fact, there's one specific passage where Paul does say more straightforwardly, don't get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. And I think what it's getting at is the idea is when you do get intoxicated, and this is probably true of any uh, smoking pot or, or any sort of mind-altering substance, what you're essentially doing is losing control of yourself, right? You're giving away control of um, yourself, of restraint, of making common sense decisions, of the ability to access any sort of wisdom in your life. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, and I think all the warnings are saying is, that's not becoming more of who God made you to be, right? When you yield that or give that up, even in a celebratory context, right? So the Broncos win the Super Bowl, like we're going to celebrate or, or on your wedding day, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of celebrations in the Bible and people even celebrate with wine and call your friends and have a party and dance and sing and, and have a festival and do some rituals like celebration is awesome, but there's a sense of um, why would you want to do it in ways that are going to diminish who you are rather than make you more of yourself. And so I think that's where Paul's getting at. Like, don't get drunk with wine because that just makes you less of who God made you to be. But in all ways, especially when you're celebrating, celebrate in ways that God, you know, honor God and that are honoring to you and that are honoring to what human celebration is supposed to be about. So in that sense, personal opinion, I probably lean towards saying, yeah, I think getting intoxicated um, is, is usually um, not what God would have us want to be and do. Agreed. Um, I bet you did not think you were going to come to church and hear about circumcision and weed, but <laughs> that is a thank you. Um, okay, where do the pronouns we use for God or the Holy Spirit come from? So mm. we usually refer to God as the yeah. Uh, from the Bible and from um, actually the original Hebrew and the original Greek. So um, there is a lot of discussion about pronouns today in lots of different ways and, and contexts. Um, and so uh, this can get super technical, super quick. So I'll, um, I shouldn't go there, but, um, but I'll do it a little bit. Um, so um, both, he, if you know a foreign language, this is true of a lot of foreign languages. Foreign languages often have masculine and feminine nouns, and they use masculine and feminine sort of pronouns. And so all the pronouns used for God in the Bible are masculine, and he's referred to as father. Now, that does not mean God is a male, 
right? It's very clear that when humans are made, it says men and women, males and females are made in God's image. And so there's no sense that God is male or that God is a man. It's just that the dominant metaphor that is used for us to understand that God is like one of us in that he is a person we can relate to. There wasn't a gender neutral pronoun to use, right? And so they use the primary imagery of him being a parent and him being a father. Now there are stories that give him very motherly attributes. There's a story where Jesus says, if I were like a hen and I could pull you as my chicks all under my wings. So he uses some feminine language as well. What's interesting is the Holy Spirit is uh, the word for spirit in both Hebrew, that's Old Testament and Greek and New Testament is the same word for wind or breath. And it's a feminine word. It's ruach in the Hebrew, it's pneuma in the Greek. And it's just a feminine word because in most foreign languages, words are either feminine or masculine. They're not sort of in the middle. They're just given one attribute or the other. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit is uh, referred to and seen using these sort of feminine qualities. But interestingly, when the New Testament writers talk about this Holy Spirit, they use the masculine pronoun he. Um, We don't know why. Maybe because it was just more of a patriarchal uh, language, maybe for the same reasons today, when you just refer to someone else, we usually say he, because it's just become dominant in the way we use language. You're not saying it has to be he, you're just saying the president today, he might do this. Well, the president could be a woman, it could be a man, but we use oftentimes um, uh, masculine language. So does that help or does that muddy the waters? That muddied the waters. Okay. So fix it. (laughs) Well, I think we say the president's a man because it's always been a man. Um, But no, I know what you're getting at. If you say, hey, guys, it's not necessarily I'm referring to a room full of men. That just has become the dominant pronoun that we use. It's masculine. I think the key for us is we continue here. Like I continue to use he and father and all those things because that's the language the Bible uses. And and I think that's important. I just stick with that. I also think it's important to... very quickly acknowledge God's not a male, as if there's something better about being a male, right? Or there's something better about being masculine, because men and women are made both in God's image. And there's some very sort of motherly and feminine qualities of God that often go underrated that we need to uphold just as much as some of the more masculine images that we uphold. So that's important. Jesus was a male. He was. Jesus was a male. I think that's where this question gets complex because it's easy to say in theory, God, who we can't see or touch, doesn't have a gender. And then we look at the pages of scripture and see Jesus was gendered. Yes. He had to pick one. Yeah. And that's important. And that's a good, you just blew a hole in like everything I just said. No, I'm joking. Um, No, that's good. And I also remember he was Jewish. He was of different ethnicity than me. He was maybe short maybe tall, right? He might've had long hair. He might've had dark skin. He might've had light skin. I don't know. Like he had all sorts of very specific and particular human qualities that we don't focus on, right? He was probably an INTJ, just like me, (laughs) Myers-Briggs, right? No, I mean, but he had a very specific and particular, but that's not the point. If we get hung up on that and say that somehow makes men better or Jewish people better or short people or the, like, like that's not the point. The point is he became a human like all of us and he knows what it's like 
to be human and to live the kind of lives that we live and face the kind of challenges and be tempted in all the same ways we do. So that's the point of the particularity of who Jesus is. It's good. All right. Um, if all truth is God's truth, why aren't all faiths God's faiths? In other words, I want to be a universalist, but my upbringing in evangelicalism says that's wrong. Your thoughts? Hmm. Yeah, I want to be a universalist too. And I think we should all want that. Like, I think we should all deep. So universalism, if you're not familiar with that term, it just means like the idea that one day everyone's going to heaven, everyone's going to get saved, um, everyone's going to spend eternity with God. No one will spend eternity apart from God. I mean, we should all deeply long for that, right? If I've experienced God's grace and forgiveness and the life that he gives and I'm living into that, I should hope and long for all people to experience that. And I should want to tell people and encourage all people to experience that, right? Um, and there's even a few verses um, in the Bible that talk about one day God is going to reconcile all things. One day God is going to, we, we use this as a verse here at New Denver Church. One day God is going to make all things new. So there is something in all of our faiths and all of our hearts that should bend that way towards desiring that everyone would ultimately experience God's grace and forgiveness and redemption in their lives. Um, I think we all also know we live in a world where that's not always true. And there are people who don't experience that. And there are wrongs, right, that exist in the world we live in today. And so we trust in the ways that God did come into our world and did point us in the right direction. And the way that God did that is through Jesus. And so that's sort of what I just have to go with. Like, do I know what's going to happen to people who don't ultimately know who Jesus is or put their faith in Jesus? I don't know. And I'm glad I'm not the judge and I'm not the decider of what's in people's hearts. That's up to God. I leave that up to him. And I ultimately do all I can to live into what I know and what he showed me and the example that he's given me in Jesus. And I just have to kind of leave it at that. How would you explain or qualify God being in control? Is he in control of just bigger things or also smaller things? Um, wow, you're stacking the tough ones back to back. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of stories and passages in the Bible that seem to indicate God is in control, right? Um, that God is, and I, I, don't, I don't like the word control, and maybe that's what this question is getting at. I, I, I think that's the wrong word. But that God is providential, that God is sovereign, that God understands everything and all things are moving somehow and he's orchestrating things according to his will and according to his plan. There's a lot of stories and passages that seem to uphold that. There's also a ton of stories and passages in the Bible that seem to very clearly uphold. And God has given all of us freedom and he's given all of us responsibility and he's given all of us the opportunity to live into his plans or to reject his plans, to choose whatever we want to choose, right? And so um, there are some streams of Christianity that sort of focus on the first way that God is providential and sovereign. And later this was called um, Calvinism. It's sort of the Calvinistic tradition. Um, 
uh, named after a guy named John Calvin. And then there's the other uh, sort of stream that focuses on all the passages that say, no, we have freedom and we have responsibility. And God has sort of taken his hand off of the, the steering wheel and he lets us steer and he lets us make real choices. And it's really up to us. Right. And, and that sort of stream is called Arminianism. It's, it's after a guy named Jacob Arminius. Um, and I think the danger is, uh, is camping out in one of those areas too much because the Bible holds both intention, right? The Bible seems to uphold both. And there's some places I read where I'm like, yes, I'm so comforted that everything is in God's hands and works according to his purposes. And I have to lean into that truth in some places and seasons in my life. And there's other times where I read the book of Hebrews and it's like, no, 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 no. God has said, you need to make your own decisions and you need to trust him and you need to make wise choices. And he's given you the ability to reject those him and, and to make stupid choices if you want. It's all up to you. And I have to lean into that as well. And so for me, it's this tension that we have to hold. And, and that's part of the reason I, I, I think like the person who asked this, I don't know who asked this, I don't like that word control as if God is sort of micromanaging everything and everything is in his control and nothing is out of his control. No, I think he's given us the opportunity to participate with him, to co-create and, and be a part of the redemption that he's living out in this world. And we can choose to participate in that or we can choose not to. So it's, it's holding those things in tension. What do you think? Um, do we have time for one more question? I think I want to do sure. one more question. Okay. Okay. Um, as leaders of the church and individuals that have studied religion and Christianity more than most, what questions about the Christian faith do you wrestle with the most and what answers have you come up with? Do you want to go first or you want me to? Um, you can go first. Okay. I want the last word. Okay. <laughs> probably good. Um, so for me, one of the questions I've thought about the most theological questions or biblical questions over the last 10 or 15 years is God of the Old Testament versus God of the New Testament. Um, we actually talked about that at the 830 service, so you could go listen to that, said a few things about that. But that's one I've, I've wrestled with a lot, like some of those stories in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't have all the answers there, but I think understanding some of the purposes of how the, the Bible is written has helped. Um, I think there's times when I've wrestled with like uh, just the overwhelming sense of unfairness in our world. Um, I remember when I went to India and just seeing the, um, uh, the, the overwhelming poverty that I saw in the slums of Mumbai and, and flying home, I remember just like looking down and thinking like, this makes no sense. Like, how am I so privileged to grow up in the family and the place and with the, 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 the money and the opportunities that I had? And these people I saw, like, I, it, I don't. And part of that is an issue with God, but honestly, that's a problem I think non-Christians wrestle with. Like, it doesn't go away if you take God out of the picture. It still seems so unfathomable that this is the way the world works and I don't understand why or how. Um, so that's one I still wrestle with. And then I think over the last few years, um, it's mostly just been uh, how to experience the depth of, of who God is. 
And I think as I get older, um, I'm embracing more of his mystery and recognizing I, I experience him some in my intellectual thoughts about him, but there's also this deep sort of sacred and mysterious and I don't even know how to articulate emotional, heartfelt, gut-felt, um, mystical way of experiencing knowing God that you can't really talk about. And I'm leaning into like reading contemplative Christians and mystical Christians, and I'm finding lots of life there. And so I think there's a longing that I have there, and the longing is good, and it's not always fulfilled because sometimes longings take a long time to, to be fulfilled, but I think those are the ways then I'm asking questions and wrestling with new things about God. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, for me, so you're right. We've studied Christianity for a long time. Um, yeah, my whole life, basically. In high school, I could quote whole books of the Bible, like not just the names of books, like actual text of the books of the Bible. And then I went and got two degrees in God and the Bible and how to run a church and um and so these questions, a lot of the questions that we're asking today are very intellectual, and I feel like I've um, just found really compelling answers for a lot of those. And so doubt for me just looks really different. And I don't know if maybe some of you are, are kind of in this place um, where it's like the, the questions have answers, <laughs> and that's great. There, there are so many things we can know about God, and um, if you just dig a little bit into God and the Bible, like there are really, really good, compelling answers for why we believe what we believe, and I'm so encouraged by that. Um, and then there's just life, you know, and, and sometimes you don't feel <laughs> um, like you want to feel towards God. And so for me, when I think about doubt, I just think about... Um, not intellectual doubt, just emotional doubt. Um, it was three years ago tonight um, that my brother went to bed and didn't wake up. He was 32, he had a wife and two young kids, they were two and four, and his lungs hemorrhaged in his sleep. I mean, there's just no, no answer for that. Um, so in the last three years, I mean, I've definitely wrestled with just that emotional doubt of God. I, I know you're good. I know you see. I know you care. I know you're here. I know you're powerful. I know you could have stopped this if you wanted. I, I know all these things are true about you. But those things don't feel very true about you right now. That's how I doubt. I doubt God's love and his goodness and his power all the time. Not in my head, but just in my heart. And I share that with you because I bet that some of you feel the same thing. And um, the, the purpose of being a part of a community of faith is to bring those feelings. Um, and even to say there are days when I'm going to come and I'm not feeling it. Um, but I know you guys are. And so I need you to feel it and affirm it for me. Right. And we do that for one another, right? That's what makes us a community. This is why you can't be a Christian by yourself. So you can't have just a personal or private relationship. It's why we have to be a community of faith leaning on um, one another. So um, let's do this. Uh, let's close our time here. We're going to sing one more song. It's a great song. It's called Give Me Faith. And I think it gets to the heart of some of these things that we're wrestling with and that we talk about. And we also, as we lead into that, um, let's just say the Apostles' Creed together. 
Uh, The Apostles' Creed is an articulation of those central tenets of what we believe. And we say this not because we always believe it deeply in our hearts, but because sometimes we just have to say it out loud. And we have to hear others saying it out loud. And we have to say we're a part of something that has been going on for thousands of years. People of faith and doubt who come together around Jesus and around who God is. So um, would you stand now? We'll put the words on the screen. And would you join me in saying this ancient creed together? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.